Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, I have three brand new movies to review for you. Two of them came out yesterday, or that was their official release date on June 10th, 2022. The other one came out on Wednesday, June 8th, 2022. And I'm going to get to probably what's going to be one of the biggest films of this summer, which is Jurassic World Dominion. It is the third movie in the Jurassic World series, and it is the sixth movie in the Jurassic Park franchise. They say it will be the last. I don't know. I don't exactly know about that, but I (laughs) never take their word on it because I think Hollywood is pretty much desperate to bring back any franchise if it so serves them. So Jurassic World Dominion has many people from the original um, Jurassic World movie coming back, including Chris Pratt reprising his role as Raptor trainer Owen Grady, Bryce Dallas Howard, who went from corporate head of Jurassic World to crusader for the dinosaurs, Claire Deering, and also coming back are a few people who were in the original Jurassic Park movies, including Sam Neill coming back as Dr. Alan Grant, uh, Laura Dern reprising her role as Ellie Sattler, and Jeff Goldblum reprising his role as Ian Malcolm, which he hasn't played actually in 25 years. Also, I'd be remiss if I forgot to mention B.D. Wong, who reprises his role not only from the original Jurassic Park movie, but also from a few of the Jurassic World movies as Dr. Henry Wu. And the plot of this movie is a bit all over the place, but I will try to keep it focused for you as I can. So Jurassic World Dominion takes place four years after the events of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which I thought was a subpar chapter to the Jurassic Park franchise. But I will say that Jurassic World Dominion is an improvement over the last movie, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. But it's not as good as the original Jurassic Park, which I think can't be beat. I I think that's undisputed. And I also thought it fell short of the excitement and the originality of the original Jurassic World movie that came out in 2015. But Jurassic World Dominion takes place four years after, a little bit of a spoiler alert, the destruction of Isla Nublar, which was where Jurassic Park was in the original book and movie. It also was where Jurassic World became a theme park. And in the movie Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, Claire Deering and Owen Pratt sacrifice their own lives to get as many dinosaurs as possible off of that island because of the erupting volcano. So anyway, the Isla Nublar is now destructed because of that volcano. And because of that, dinosaurs now live and hunt alongside humans all over the world. And when I read that description last week, I was thinking to myself, 
that if dinosaurs hunt alongside humans all over the world, that means that if humans are hunting, dinosaurs would be the ones to retrieve carcasses or be kind of like an animal assistant. But that's not actually the case. They, when they hunt alongside humans all over the world, that means that sometimes they hunt humans. Yeah. So this fragile balance will reshape the future and determine once and for all whether human beings are to remain the apex predators on a planet they now share with history's most fearsome creatures in a new era. That was the summary that I read last week. And as you can tell, particularly with the sentence, Dinosaurs now live and hunt alongside humans all over the world. It is misleading, especially when the predators or some some of the major predators in Jurassic World Dominion are not exactly dinosaurs because the primary natural antagonist in this film is an extinct species of locusts who have reappeared and are threatening the world's crop and food supplies, which if you really think about it is kind of a timely message for the the world in which we live, where not just the United States, but countries all over the world are struggling with food supply as well as rising price of fuel. So this is, I would probably say an accidental uh, analogy to it, but they have um, noticed, or rather, there are some uh, paleo botanists, including Ellie Sattler, who is played in this movie, uh, if you'll, uh, by Laura Dern. And Laura Dern's character notices that the locusts avoid biosin-produced crops. And biosin, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the uh, Jurassic Park franchise or just haven't uh, seen a movie in a little while, biosin is InGen's corporate rival. And the company is controversial for its industrial espionage in the genetics industry. And this is the movie where biosin is front and center. And I don't think Biasin played a huge role in some of the other films, but in this movie, Biasin is founded by a CEO by the name of Lewis Dodgen, who's played by Campbell Scott in one of his many villainous roles. And they, they make Campbell Scott out to be kind of like Tim Cook or uh, Steve Jobs. He wears glasses. He has uh, dark... Uh, graying hair, and he usually wears uh, cheap suits that are uh, almost all black. And as it turns out, Lewis Dodgen is not only responsible for this extinct species of locust who are gorging themselves on the uh, crop and food supply all over the world, starting in some of the most remote parts of America, But he has also targeted Maisie Lockwood, and Maisie Lockwood is living with Claire Deering and Owen Grady, Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt's characters, respectively. But it's not exactly Maisie Lockwood herself. She is, we are told, a clone of Benjamin Lockwood's daughter. And Benjamin Lockwood was a character from the original Jurassic Park series. 
So there is a lot going on here. First, the Claire Deering, Owen Grady, as well as the original characters from the Jurassic Park series, Alan Grant, Ellie Sattler, and Ian Malcolm, are trying to stop this prehistoric swarm of locusts from taking over the food supply all over the world. And they're also trying to stop Biasin from encouraging them to do it. And as I was watching this film, it does take place four years after the original. And one of the things that disappointed me the most was the fact that there seemed to be some significant things that happened between the end of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom and the beginning of Jurassic World Dominion that are just told to you in about three to five minutes. For example, we're told that the character of Maisie Lockwood, who's played by a young British actress by the name of Isabella Sermon, is a clone of Benjamin Lockwood's granddaughter. But you don't see at the end of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom or the beginning of Jurassic World Dominion why Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard's characters have captured a clone of someone. And it would have been better to have seen that rather than be told that. Also, it, it seemed like they they took her in about four years ago, yet Maisie Lockwood has a British accent, which I see which seems kind of doubtful to me considering that she is being raised in a remote part of America by two Americans and accents are not genetic. So why would she have a British accent? I don't exactly know. And the other thing that kind of bothered me is the fact that you had a movie about dinosaurs not living in captivity on Isla Nublar, but alongside people And that's not the main focus of the film. It's on locusts or prehistoric locusts. And also, you don't quite see the dinosaurs stepping up and doing something about the locusts. They just kind of either get out of the way or they reenact certain scenes from the original Jurassic Park film, particularly when the T-Rex makes a reappearance. And... There is actually a lot that I do like about Jurassic World Dominion. First of all, what does Dominion mean? Well, according to the Webster's Dictionary, Dominion is the power of right or power or right of governing and controlling. It's sovereign authority, which I don't exactly think pertains to this movie at all. I mean, who who would be the one who is the head of the Dominion? Would it be the dinosaurs? Would it be the head of Biasin, Campbell Scott's character? Would it be the humans themselves trying to establish authority? It just doesn't really delve into that. But I, I, I said that I would, I would talk about things that I loved about this film, not, not things that were off about it. And I did like the reprisal of many of the characters from Jurassic World and Jurassic Park. There are also some other noteworthy characters that I thought uh, served very well. In fact, so well to this movie that 
I I wish that they there could be another Jurassic World or Jurassic Park movie so I could see these characters. For example, there's a pilot character named Kayla Watts who's played by a youngish actress named Dewanda Wise, and she can fly just about anything. And in fact, there's one part where she reluctantly saves Claire Deering and Owen Grady as they are trying to get Maisie Lockwood back from the evil Biasin Corporation. And while they are trying to get on Kayla Watts's plane, there are some raptors that are chasing them. And Chris Pratt is driving away from them on a motorcycle. But once he gets on the plane, I won't give away exactly what happens, but it's a great action sequence and probably one of the best in the Jurassic Park franchise as a whole, especially with what happens with that motorcycle. But besides being a really good action hero, I thought that DeWanda Wise also had some great lines and interacted alongside the original Jurassic Park and Jurassic World cast as if she had been there the whole time. If they don't make another Jurassic Park movie, I would love to see a separate movie about Kayla Watts herself. I also liked the character of Ramsey Cole, who is who works for uh, Biasin without really being aware at first how evil the corporation of Biosyn is. He's played by Mamadou Athey, who is um, one of those characters or one of those actors who is youngish. And I've seen him in various other movies, as I'm sure you have. But I think this is probably his breakout role as well. And I, I thought the movie worked best when the humans interacted with the dinosaurs. I wasn't so hot on the idea of some of the sequences of the, especially the original Jurassic Park movie being repeated in some scenes. And also, I just thought when you have a story where dinosaurs are interacting with human beings and are living alongside them, I just thought that putting locusts into the movie as if this is the uh, biblical Armageddon, I didn't think really exactly worked. I thought there could have been another kind of story thread where the dinosaurs were the focus, not the locusts. But with that said, I was more impressed with Jurassic World Dominion than I was with Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, but it does not hold a candle to the original Jurassic Park movie. I think that's the first and the best, and you can't really beat Steven Spielberg in that regard. But, uh, and also, Jurassic World, I thought, was a good reboot of the Jurassic Park franchise, especially after the Lost World Jurassic Park and Jurassic Park 3 were largely forgettable, which is unfortunate because they were quite auspicious when they came out. And Colin Trevorrow, who directed the original Jurassic World, comes back to direct Jurassic World Dominion. And while I was disappointed by certain points of the Jurassic World Dominion movie, I overall thought A, it looked great on the big screen, and B, the cast outside of the dinosaurs worked very well together. And there were some amazing action sequences and some 
very good uh, new characters, especially DeWanda Wise's character, Kayla Watts, who I thought stood out not only amongst the new characters, but amongst all the characters in general, which is why I'm giving Jurassic World Dominion my rating of a high checkout, because I think that it is a really good summer blockbuster film that begs to be seen on the big screen. If you can see it in IMAX, that's great. If you can see it in 3D, it wouldn't hurt. But as long as you see it on a big screen, I don't think you'll be entirely disappointed. But what I would have loved to have probably seen is Jurassic Park, then Jurassic World, then this movie. And the other three films, I think you can largely forget unless you're really, really curious about how they turn out. But Jurassic World Dominion is third of the six Jurassic Park movies, but overall, it's not bad. I just think in terms of story, it could have been much, much stronger. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Hustle. This is the latest film from Adam Sandler, which is a Netflix original and can be seen not only on Netflix, but also in select theaters uh, around this time. It was Its official release date was June 8th, 2022, but you can see it on Netflix probably indefinitely. The movie does star Adam Sandler, and it is a Happy Madison production, but unlike other Happy Madison productions, Hustle is very high on drama and and low, or appropriately low, on comedy. That is actually not unusual for an Adam Sandler movie, but it is unusual for an Adam Sandler movie under Happy Madison productions, but I was actually pleasantly surprised because... This is probably the best Happy Madison production I've seen for a very long time. And I think that Adam Sandler is really great in almost all of the dramas in which he's acted over the last 20 years, starting with Punch Drunk Love, which bombed at the box office when it first came out because I think it was a side of Adam Sandler that some people were ready to see, but many people who are fans of his comedies were not ready to see. But that movie, I think, has stood the test of time on Adam Sandler's repertoire. But it seems that during Adam Sandler's career, the movies he's made outside of Happy Madison Productions have largely been pretty good. And the ones he's made inside of Happy Madison's productions, even though Happy Madison Productions is probably one of the best production companies from an analyst actor, or at least the most profitable, but the movies themselves, whether they've had Adam Sandler in there or not, especially if their comedies have been subpar for a variety of reasons. But Hustle is, while not a straight-out comedy, it's it has some funny parts, and Adam Sandler is excellent in it. So, Hustle is about a basketball scout who's played by Adam Sandler, who is a scout for the Philadelphia 76ers, who discovers a phenomenal streetball player while in Spain and sees the prospect as his opportunity to get back into the NBA. 
And Adam Sandler plays the character of Stanley Sugarman, whose name you hear a lot. When Stanley Sugarman was in college, he had prospects to be in the NBA himself, but an injury that resulted from a car crash forced him to reconsider his options, but he never left the NBA. He just became a scout who aspires to be a coach in the Philadelphia 76ers. And he is married in this movie to Teresa Sugarman, who is played by Queen Latifah. And at first, I didn't think Adam Sandler and Queen Latifah had the greatest chemistry. But as the movie progressed, I really bought into their chemistry. And I also thought that uh, their daughter, Alex Sugarman, who played who's played by Jordan Hull, had even better chemistry with Adam Sandler in the sense that I could believe that Jordan Hull was Adam Sandler's actual daughter. But another thing that differentiates Hustle from other Happy Madison productions, besides the fact that it's more dramatic than comedic, is the fact that a lot of Adam Sandler's regular players who are in Happy Madison productions are not in this one. There's no Kevin James, David Spade, Rob Schneider, Nick Swardson, or anybody to that nature. And I think that's good because... I honestly think that if it weren't for Happy Madison Productions, Nick Swardson wouldn't have a movie career, and I'm fine with that. But instead, there are a number of other noteworthy supporting actors in the film. I did mention Queen Latifah and Jordan Hull, but there's also Robert Duvall, who plays the president of the Philadelphia 76ers, Rex Merrick. And Robert Duvall only has a few scenes, which may probably spoil what happens to his character. But he also has two children in the movie who run the 76ers with him. There's his daughter, Kat, who's played by SNL current Not Ready for Primetime player Heidi Gardner, who is a very good actress, and she's also very funny. And there's also his son, Vince, who's played by Ben Foster. And obviously Adam Sandler's character has known these two Merrick children for a long time, but he gets along much better with Kat than he does with Vince. And Ben Foster's character is more of a realistic adversary for Stanley Sugarman, especially when Rex Merrick offers Stanley the role of a lifetime on the Philadelphia 76ers. And then... When something happens to Robert Duvall's character, I, I can't help but spoil it, but it happens near the beginning of the film. Basically, there's more tension between Vince Merrick and Stanley Sugarman, especially when Cat Merrick takes a leave of absence from the 76ers. So Stanley Sugarman is going back to being a scout, and he hasn't had very much success with being a scout until he's in Spain and he sees an underground basketball game with a very tall player by the name of Bo Cruz, who everybody pronounces Bo Cruz, but C-R-U-Z is actually pronounced Cruz in Spain. And he's played by Juancho Hernan Gomez, who is actually a Spaniard. He is a native of Madrid, and he's actually only 26 years old as of the date of this movie. And he is probably a, a... basketball player in real life. He's six foot nine, so he is obviously very huge. And having been to Spain myself and having lived there for a little while, honestly, I had no idea 
that Spaniards could be this tall, but I guess you'd never really know. But the movie Hustle is Juancho Hernan Gomez's um, movie debut, and he actually is a real-life NBA player. And for a guy who has never acted in a film before other than having been in NBA basketball games and having one appearance as himself on Axis Hollywood, Juancho Hernan Gomez is really good. Granted, he plays a basketball player who aspires to be in the NBA, so that's not a huge stretch for him as an actor, but he's done a lot better than other athletes that I've seen in movies. For example, in the movie He Got Game, Ray Allen made his debut in that Spike Lee joint, and Ray Allen's acting was not particularly good, but then again, Ray Allen also had some very heavy dramatic material. So for somebody who had never acted previously before being in the 1998 movie, he got game, which came out, my God, I'm old 24 years ago. I thought Ray Allen did relatively well, but he still had a lot more uh, acting to do, but Juancho Hernan Gomez for what he has to do in this film is very good. Plus when he is training with, Stanley Sugarman to be considered for the NBA for the tryouts. The kinds of exercises that Adam Sandler has him do are unenviably difficult. For example, there's one hill he has to run up in suburban Philadelphia that he has to run up in one minute, 45 seconds. And he doesn't do that at once, but man, Whew, that it, it's just very hard to watch him do that. It, and especially if you are familiar with what it takes to get into shape in the NBA, it, it's, it's a lot of hard work. And I thought the, the, the way the movie presented itself was somewhat predictable. It's sort of taking a, a rags to riches story about a trainer who is trying to train somebody who aspires to be in the NBA, but because of where he was raised and his geographic location, it's not particularly easy to do that unless somebody who is more familiar with the NBA actually trains you and knows the ins, ins and outs of getting into the NBA. But, but Hustle is a movie that I think, I, I, I wouldn't exactly say that I would would vouch for this movie's realism because I've never worked in the NBA. All I really know about the NBA is what I see during basketball games. And that's not really a lot, but I think hustle, particularly because it's produced not only by Adam Sandler, but also LeBron James makes this quest for NBA dominance seem real, especially given that there are a ton of NBA greats, both ones who are playing in the NBA now and ones who are retired but still close to the game, who make cameos in this film, some without even real speaking parts. For example, Mark Cuban, who's the president of the Dallas Mavericks, makes an appearance but doesn't have any lines. And there are countless other current NBA players, retired NBA players, sports commentators that make appearances in this film. And I think they're used to the advantage of this film as well. There's also a really good supporting performance by Kenny Smith, who plays Stanley Sugarman's 
confidant and fellow recruiter whose name in this film, uh, Kenny Smith's character's name is Leon, and he and Adam Sandler play um, very good friends who I would believe would have been uh, friends for um, a lifetime. But he, uh, Kenny Smith has, of course, extensive experience in the NBA, and he can act as well. And there's just a lot to like about Hustler. G- given that I was watching the beginning of the film and I saw the Netflix logo pop up and then I saw the Happy Madison logo pop up, I thought to myself, oh boy, <laughs> this is a Happy Madison movie with Adam Sandler. I'm going to brace myself. Of course, I look at every movie with an open funnel and I was very impressed by Hustle. I thought that just about every person who was in this movie, who was cast in this movie either as a major character or as a cameo was just about perfect. And I think that Adam Sandler really shines in dramatic movies so much. In fact, that maybe just maybe he doesn't have to go back to comedies, but if it's, if this movie is any indication about Adam Sandler's thriving career as a dramatic actor for which no one really expected him to thrive back in 2002, I think this is a very good sign. So hustle gets my rating of a knockout. I was very impressed by Adam Sandler's performance as well as just about everyone's performance in this movie, especially supporting players like Queen Latifah, Juancho Hernan Gomez, Kenny Smith, and Jordan Hull, amongst others. And I could go on and on about some of the other actors in the film who did really well, but I just did. But I was very impressed by Hustle, and hopefully Adam Sandler will continue to make movies like this. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Trees of Peace. This is a Netflix original that premiered on Netflix on June 10th, 2022, and as far as I know, can only be seen on Netflix. So hopefully you haven't dropped your Netflix account. I already glowed about the Adam Sandler movie Hustler. Trees of Peace is also a drama, but it is much, much, much darker than Hustle, but it is a really great film. The movie is rated TVMA, and the movie Hustle was rated R, so I think Trees of Peace could probably be considered a made-for-TV movie, but... It is excellent, and it's it's kind of hard, just getting on to a different subject, to differentiate between what movies could be considered movies that are eligible for Oscars and which ones are considered uh, made for TV and eligible for Emmys. But Trees of Peace is an excellent film. It takes place during a very dark period, not only in Rwandan history and African history, but also world history. It takes place in April of 1994. And for those of you who don't remember uh, 1994, uh, particularly world history in 1994, there was a Rwandan genocide, which is also known as the Genocide Against the Tutsi, 
that occurred between April 7th and July 15th, 1994, during the Rwandan Civil War, which took place between 1990 and 1994. During this period of around 100 days, members of the Tutsi minority ethnic group, as well as some moderate Hutu and Twa, were killed by armed militias. And these armed militias basically just didn't ask questions. They just killed whoever, whatever Tutsi, Hutu, or Twa were ever in their sight. And I could go on and on about the history of Rwanda, what the uh, Tutsi ethnic group who they were in comparison to the Hutu and the Twa. I won't exactly do that, but I will say that during just this three-month period with a couple of days as change, the most widely accepted scholarly estimates of deaths were around 500,000 to 662,000, and that was just amongst the Tutsi. There are other people who estimate that, and this is really sad, Nearly a million people died during this three-and-a-half-month period. And Trees of Peace takes place during this period, but it's about four women from different backgrounds and beliefs who are trapped and hiding during the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. And while they are trapped in this confined basement space in an unassuming house in Rwanda... They fight for survival against all odds, and this fight unites the women in an unbreakable sisterhood. The movie is unfortunately uh, fictional, but based on, or rather inspired by, actual events, and it is directed by and written by Alana Brown, who is a who, who is an American uh, filmmaker. As far as directing, this is actually her feature film directorial debut. Before this, she directed a short called 1426 Chelsea Street, but wow, what an impressive debut as a director for this movie. It takes place primarily in a very small and cramped basement space where there are four women, three of whom are native Rwandan and one who is actually an American and a white American who are hiding out in this space and for a vast majority of the film they can't leave the space for two reasons number one because it's locked from the outside which is already claustrophobic to think about in and of itself but also uh because if they leave there is a chance that a rwandan guerrilla soldier will discover them and kill them right on the spot I'm not going to tell you exactly what happens here, but the four principal actresses in the movie are Elaine Yumahari, Charmaine Bingwa, Bolo Koliosho, and Ella Cannon. Ella Cannon is the sole American in this film and the sole white person. Uh, She's actually an Australian actress who plays an American, and it's presumed that she is there because she joined uh, the Peace Corps, you know, with all the right intentions. Although I don't exactly know, particularly when the Rwandan Civil War was going on between 1990 and 1994, I'm not exactly sure if the Peace Corps would send people to war-torn countries necessarily. Poor countries, absolutely. 
War torn, I wouldn't exactly be sure, but I'm I suppose it happens. There's also another character who's known as Jeanette. Uh, she's played by Charmaine Bingwa, who is a nun. The, the third woman is uh, Anik, who is hidden in this basement space by her husband, uh, Francois, who's played by Tongayi Carissa. And he hides them there with absolutely good intentions, but these four women are there in this cramped space with very little food, only a hole in the floor to use the bathroom, and they have no communications other than what they can see outside of their window. And they don't want to look outside of their window for too long, lest they be spotted by a guerrilla soldier. But all the while, they don't know whether Francois is going to come back and free them from this basement area. So there is a lot that goes on in such a confined space. And it actually is pretty amazing that this film is uh, was a movie first because I could absolutely see this as a play as well. And it's very claustrophobic and you wonder as you're watching this film how you would react if you were trapped in such a place with three other people and especially when one of the characters is actually pregnant and her ability to give birth to a child is called immediately into question for obvious reasons this is a very powerful film it's one that i i don't even think experienced directors could direct quite as well, but I guess that all depends on somebody's background or their perspective. But from a storytelling perspective, it's amazing. And the four women who are trapped inside this basement take up, of course, the majority of the story. And for very good reason. I don't know how long this movie took to film, but it does feel like it takes place over the course of three and a half months. And I mean that as a compliment because I feared for these women as I was watching this film and I did not envy what they went through at all. I was disappointed to find out that the film is largely fiction because the end epilogue tells you the results of the end of the Rwandan genocide, which was all over the news before OJ Simpson was accused of murdering his wife and another man. But it just shows you watching this film that when human beings are put to the test, it's amazing what they can accomplish, which is why I give the movie trees of peace, my rating of an absolute enthusiastic knockout. Is this a movie I'll see again? Maybe, particularly if somebody who has not seen it would want to see it themselves. But I was just amazed by how great this film was. I think it's probably one of the films that will make you keep your Netflix account because it's one of the better films that Netflix has ever released. And kudos to director and writer Alana Brown for directing such a film because it's rated TV MA. I doubt it'd be eligible for Oscars, but 
I hope it gets some award recognition, no matter what award for which it is eligible. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming for the week of June 13th through 17th. 2022. And I'm going to start with the movies that are subject to be released, subject to being released, excuse me, on, um, in theaters on June 17th, 2022. And the biggest movie that's going to be released on June 17th is a spinoff of Toy Story that's called Lightyear. And, <clears throat> excuse me, wow. Um, this is a movie that is not based on toys, but it's based on the legacy of Buzz Lightyear or the imagined legacy of Buzz Lightyear. So this movie takes place in space, and while spending years attempting to return home, maroon space ranger Buzz Lightyear encounters an army of ruthless robots commanded by Zerg who are attempting to steal his fuel source. And if you've seen any of the Toy Story movies, particularly the first two, you'll know at least a little bit about the franchise of Buzz Lightyear. And rather than Tim Allen being the voice of Buzz Lightyear, Buzz Lightyear is instead voiced by Chris Evans. And some other voice actors in the film include Kiki Palmer, Dale Sewells, and Taika YTT. Is this movie being released in theaters? Yes. Is it being released on Disney Plus? Unfortunately, no. This is a movie that's coming out only in theaters. I think if the pandemic was worse, Disney Plus would definitely release it on their platform. But Lightyear is a movie that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. The other movie that is subject to being released in theaters is a movie that's called Spiderhead. Not only is this being released in theaters, it is also being released as a Netflix original. Spiderhead sounds like a movie about uh, decapitated Peter Parker, who, uh, but it's not about that at all. It's not related to the Marvel Cinematic Universe at all. That was just a bad joke on my end. But anyway, it takes place in the near future where convicts are offered the chance to volunteer as medical subjects to shorten their sentence. One such subject for a new drug capable of generating feelings of love begins questioning the reality of his emotions. That actually sounds very... Deep and very interesting. The movie stars Miles Teller, Charles Parnell, Chris Hemsworth, and Journey Smollett. So I can't really vouch too much for Charles Parnell because I don't know his repertoire. But, oh, actually, 
Charles Parnell is an actor who was in the last Top Gun movie, also with Miles Teller. And Miles Teller, I feel like, is making somewhat of a comeback. I think his movie career was derailed temporarily seven years ago when he played Reed Richards in the movie that is not so affectionately known as Fan Stick, which is actually the Fantastic Four movie that took the Fantastic Four way too seriously. But the Marvel Cinematic Universe did hint in the last Doctor Strange movie that, first of all, a new Fantastic Four movie may be coming out, and secondly, Miles Teller will not be playing Reed Richards. But it wasn't entirely Miles Teller's fault that Fan Forstick fell short of greatness. I didn't think it was a terrible movie, but I did think it fell short. But it's good to see a good actor like Miles Teller make more of a comeback this year, and who knows? I'm not saying that Spiderhead will be a good or a bad film, but I'm interested in seeing it, and I'll let you know what I will see it, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on June 17th is one that looks like it will be likely to be released in indie theaters rather than multiplexes, but it's a movie that's called Brian and Charles, and it's about a guy named Brian. It's also about a guy named Charles, but Brian is the main subject. And after a particularly harsh winter, Brian goes into a deep depression, completely isolated and with no one to talk to. Brian does what any sane person would do when faced with such a melancholic situation. He builds a robot. Um... <laughs> Is that what any sane person would do uh, when they're isolated? I would imagine that during the pandemic, there weren't a ton of people who built a robot, but this movie sounds like a very odd film and also one that I would be very interested in seeing. The movie is uh, directed by Jim Archer and written by David Earl and Chris Hayward. And David Earl and Chris Hayward actually have the lead roles in this film. And I'm looking at the roster of actors in the film, and I don't recognize anybody else. But it sounds like one of those films that is so odd and yet so appealing and also deals with the uncanny valley as well. The director, Jim Archer, has directed several short films and a few episodes of TV shows like Big Boys, Down from London, and The Young Offenders. But Brian and Charles is his feature film debut as a director. I'm very interested in seeing this one. I don't know if I'll have time, though, but if I do, I'll see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed, or rather given you a spoken word preview of all the movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of Jeff, uh, of June 13th through June 17th, it's now time for me to get into my next segment of what's coming up next, which is 
what's coming up next on streaming, or at least that's my unofficial title for it. So during the week of June 13th through June 17th, there are a number of very interesting films that are going to be making an appearance first on Netflix. On Monday, June 13th, the one film that is making an appearance on Netflix is a documentary that is not a Netflix original, but it came out last year, uh, 2021, and the movie is called Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America. It is interweaving lecture, personal anecdotes, interviews, and shocking revelations. Um, And lawyer Jeffrey Robinson, who not only stars in the film, but also is credited as the writer of the film, draws a stark timeline of anti-black racism in the United States from slavery to to the modern myth of a post-racial America. This deals, obviously, with some very heavy and very touchy subjects. And Jeffrey Robinson is a man who I don't know uh, personally, or rather, I don't know of uh, until I saw the description of this movie, but it sounds like he's a man on a mission, and I I think I will see this film because it's it certainly promises to be an eye-opening movie. Will it be a, a great film? Well, it certainly has a lot of promise. And if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. On Tuesday, June 14th, another documentary is premiering, which is a Netflix original, unlike Who We Are. And the movie is called Halftime, and it deals with a subject that is not quite as heavy. It is an intimate look at Jennifer Lopez as she reflects on her milestones and evolution as an artist and navigates the second half of her career, continuing to entertain, empower, and inspire. So, of course, this documentary stars Jennifer Lopez. It's interesting that it would be called Halftime, because when I think of Halftime, I think of sports, just about every sport except hockey. And it is directed by Amanda Michelli, who is a British director who who has worked extensively as a cinematographer, and has directed some other documentary shorts, including One Nation Under Dog, which came out in 2012, and Vegas Baby, which came out in 2016. But other than that, I'm not familiar with Amanda McKelly, but Jennifer Lopez, whether you love her or you hate her, you can't deny that she is fascinating. Not to mention, she joins the lexicon of Jane Fonda, Raquel Welch, and Catherine Deneuve, and Susan Sarandon as women who look almost unnaturally great for their age. She's not as old as those aforementioned women, but if she keeps up her workout regimen, whatever that is, or her deal with the devil, she's probably going to look good until she's 70. But Halftime is a movie that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And on Wednesday, June 15th, there are a number of foreign films that are going to be premiering. Uh, there's one that comes from Spain, which is called Centauro. There's one called Heat Parade, and there's another one that's called The Wrath of God. In addition to that, there's also a movie that will be appearing on uh, Netflix that's called Front Cover. And Front Cover is not a Netflix original, and it doesn't look like it's a documentary either. It's a movie that came out in 2015. And it's one that, even though I was hosting Words on Film back in 2015, I haven't actually seen this. 
But this is a movie about a gay fashion stylist who works with a renowned foreign actor. And while he's working for them, they both embark on a journey to self-discovery. The movie is directed by and written by Ray Yoong, who is an American director who looks to be of Korean descent based on his last name. And the movie stars Jake Choi and James Chen. It's unlikely I'll see this film, but if you want to see it for yourself, it's appearing on Netflix on Wednesday, June 15th. On Thursday, there's a Japanese film that is going to be appearing that's called Sing Dance Act, Kabuki featuring Toma Ikuta. And it sounds like either a music video or a documentary, but it's called a film, not a documentary. So I don't know. Maybe I'll see that. I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Also appearing on Netflix on Thursday, June 16th, is the excellent 2017 documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, about Fred Rogers. And I even said, as I was reviewing the movie A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood starring Tom Hanks, that's a good film, but Won't You Be My Neighbor is an excellent film that unfortunately did not get nominated for Best Documentary. I'm running out of time, so I can't talk about that documentary extensively, but if you don't believe me that that's a great documentary, on Netflix on uh, Thursday, June 16th. On Friday, June 17th, as I told you, Spiderhead will be premiering on Netflix, and I talked more about that film during the uh, first part of what's coming up next. There's also another documentary, which may be a multi-part documentary, and it's called The Martha Mitchell Effect. Who is Martha Mitchell? Well, I'm about to tell you, but apparently she has an effect on people. So let me look that up for you right now. Actually... Uh, the Martha Mitchell effect is not giving me any information on the web, so I will skip that. I, I may not skip it in terms of seeing the movie, but if I have time to see it, I'll check it out and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. On Apple TV on Friday, June 17th, there is a movie that's premiering that's called Cha-Cha Reel. And I will not see this because I don't have Apple TV. Oh, it's actually called... Um, cha-cha real smooth, but it has a stellar cast and I might actually steal somebody's Apple TV subscription to see this film. It's about a young man who works as a bar mitzvah party host who strikes up a friendship with a mother and her autistic daughter. The, the main actor in this film is a, an actor named Cooper Rafe. And he stars in the movie, not only and directs it and writes it, along with Dakota Johnson, uh, who is presumably his love interest. And also starring in the movie is Leslie Mann, Brad Garrett, and Raul Castillo. So it looks like a, a really good roster of actors here. It really is unfortunate that I don't subscribe to Apple TV because once in a while a really good movie appears or a potentially good movie appears on Apple TV, but Apple TV plus mostly has TV shows rather than movies. So because this is a film show, not a, uh, a show about uh, TV series necessarily, I'm going to hold off on seeing that and I'll let you know what I think, or rather maybe you'll hear what other people think, but I'd, I'd love to see it for myself, but it's unlikely that I will. That just about does it for this episode of words on film. 
Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.